0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. It's, uh, got a lot to get through, so I want to just jump right into the sermon today. Um, let's get, gather our hearts together in prayer, and then we will... Uh, launch right into our message today, which is entitled, God in the Mess. God, we want to come to you with a spirit of openness. We pray that our searching in your word would always be accompanied by prayer, prayer that seeks uh, wisdom that can only come from you, to uh, help us to understand uh, what the meaning behind uh, your scriptures is for our lives. And so we open ourselves to the work of your spirit to show us the way and to give us understanding. We want to pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a little bit of feedback here that I'm hearing that's a bit louder. Is there anything going on there or nothing we can do? Okay. Um, anyway, let's go on here. Before I actually get into the message, wanted to ask you a quick question about um, whether I, I've had a few people at church ask me about my notes. You know, I sometimes I'll show some extended quotes from different writers and things like that or some Bible verses. Sometimes I see people kind of whip out their phones even and take pictures of the screen. Uh, But would it be helpful to you if I actually pushed out my notes on the website along with like the podcast and stuff? Would there be some people that find that useful? Okay, okay. How how about the keynote presentation? These slides. I know sometimes I make reference to pictures and things like that and don't always have them. If if that was available, would there be some people that would access that, or some of you would okay, all right, so we 'll talk through it when we show like a video clip and things like that. we may not always be able to do it because of copyright issues and things like that, but uh, wherever we 're able to we 'll see what we might be able to push out onto the website, okay, along with the audios of the of the sermons okay all right let 's get into the message then this morning um, as you can see we're we 're covering uh, a lot here. <laughs> 1 Samuel 27 to 30. We're, we're, we're not going to look at chapter 28, but that's still these three chapters to get through today, okay? And so get ready, put your seatbelts on, and the train is going to move, all right? Um, uh, I want to begin, I've been be kind of referencing movies for the last several sermons, and so I think I'm going to keep the tradition going for this message today. Uh, the 2013 movie Prisoners, now I'm going to say this. Like I said with the last one, this is a hard R. And to be honest with you, I don't know if this movie's worth watching. Um, I don't know if there's enough payoff at the end of it to bear through some of the gratuitous violence that's in this movie. And so if you're wondering if you should go see it, I would say don't see it. Okay, I'm going to tell you for the most part everything you need to know right now about this movie. Um, but this movie Prisoners, which came out uh, about five years back, explores this question of how far would you go as a parent uh, in order to protect your child? How far would you go? Uh, It's Thanksgiving dinner and this family of four goes over to a friend's house and the children are all playing outside that day. And then later on, the 16-year-old daughter, Anna, goes missing along with the daughter of the other family, these two girls suddenly disappear. And in this panic of trying to figure out where they are, it eventually becomes revealed that there was this beat-up RV that was parked on the street that didn't look like it really belonged there. And there was a strong suspicion that it has something to do with the disappearance of these girls. Well, eventually, the police track down this RV to a local gas station, and they end up arresting the owner of the RV, Uh, And the owner is this young man named Alex who clearly has some kind of mental issues. And I would argue he's got to be one of the creepiest villains in recent memory, okay? Uh, Really creepy guy. But the problem is that after he's arrested, there's not enough evidence to keep him in custody. And so the police are forced to release him. And as he's leaving the police station... um, he basically whispers into the father's ear of the daughter that's missing, uh, they didn't cry until I left them. And then he sings the same song that his daughter was singing earlier. So realizing that the police cannot help him, uh, the father, who's played by Hugh Jackman, um, abducts this guy, Alex, and he imprisons him in this abandoned house. And he begins to do unthinkable things to this guy to try to get him to confess where his daughter is. And as the audience watching all this, it's really hard to stomach what he does to this guy, Alex. And yet, I think what the movie is sort of forcing us to ask ourselves, though, is if you were in the father's shoes... What would you be willing to do if you absolutely believed that this guy had your daughter? And you need to do what you need to do to get this guy to talk because it's your daughter's life on the line. How far would you go for your own child? I think it's very easy to debate ethical issues in the sterile environment of a classroom But it's a lot harder to make moral decisions in the messiness of a broken world in which doing the right thing isn't always clear, is it? Like, does the principle of turn the other cheek that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount apply to self-defense? If somebody invades your home and attacks you, do you have every right, even in God's eyes, to attack them back? Is there such thing as a just war? and a rationale for killing other people. Some of you may have had this question posed to you in one setting or another that if you were alive during World War II in Europe and if you were hiding Jews during the war and Nazis came to your door and asked you point blank, are you hiding Jews, would you say yes? In other words, does God always want you to be truthful no matter what, even if it means giving up Jews who will then be sent to a concentration camp? Or do the ends justify the means? Does the greater good of saving these lives justify the sin of lying in a case like that? Is it possible to be trapped in a situation where you basically feel that there's no way out but to choose the lesser of two evils? I think these are the realities of living in a broken and fallen world, isn't it? And it's the type of impossible situations, I think, that David faced in the wilderness, in the desert, throughout this decade-long period where he was running for his life. These last several sermons have been in this period of David's life known as the wilderness years. Everything in David's early life read like a fairy tale. Tending his father's sheep as a boy, he experiences the nearness and the help of God. And there he is with his little harp with a lamb on his lap, writing psalms and singing praises to God about how good God is. Then while still a youth, he is chosen over his seven older brothers, anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. And then the next chapter of his story is there in the valley of Elah, rising to the challenge of this giant Goliath when not a single soldier in the entire Israelite army had the courage to do so. And so there, on that battlefield, David becomes the champion of Israel and defeats the giant. In other words, everything that David has experienced up to this point in his life seems to confirm the fact that he lived a charmed life. After all, God was with him. All that is left is for him to ascend to the throne as king. But that's also precisely when his entire life will be turned upside down because of Saul's jealousy against David, which ends up causing Saul to try to kill him repeatedly. And so David flees into this wilderness of Israel where he will spend over a decade running for his life. And one of the things that we discover as we read about these wilderness years is that although circumstantially it may seem very clear that Saul and his jealousy is what drove David into the wilderness, that it is actually God and his greater purposes that was at work in David's life. Because in that wilderness, God was teaching David lessons that he would need in order to be king over God's people. And these are not the kind of lessons that you learn when everything is going according to your expectations, when all you are tasting is victory in your life. These are lessons that can only be learned in the wilderness. And so today we're going to look at the final series of stories that occurs in these wilderness years. And so, what I want to do is, I want to walk you through the actual historical events, and then afterwards, I want to draw a couple of lessons from them to see what we can learn. In my last sermon, we left David off in this region of the desert called Maon. This is a place where he was protecting the shepherds of this very wealthy man named Nabal. And in return for that kindness, David asks a simple favor, a small favor, and he says, with the holidays coming, would you give us some food so that me and my men, we can celebrate together? And acting like the fool that he is, Nabal refuses David's request. And he, in fact, not just refuses the request, but he has to insult David on top of that and calls him a runaway slave of Saul. He says, why would I do this for you? So filled with indignation and a bruised ego, David tells his men to arm up, and they begin the march to Nabal's estate where they intend to kill every man, woman, and child in Nabal's household. God only knows the bloodbath that would have taken place that day if it wasn't for Abigail, Nabal's wife. Um, I think this picture makes her look a little bit like an American soccer mom wearing Middle Eastern clothes, but (laughs) (laughs) it's the best picture I could find. I'm sorry. All right. Um, Nabal's wife, we're told, is beautiful, not only on the outside but also on the inside. And she intercepts David before he can reach Nabal's estate. And convinces him to turn back. And the core of her message is to tell David, don't let this fool of my husband turn you into a fool, David. Don't let him derail you from your destiny, which is so woven into the destiny of God and his plan for Israel. I didn't finish the story last week, but really what happens is David returns home and Abigail returns home. And when Abigail gets home, she finds her husband had a huge party in his own honor and now he's basically passed out drunk. So she decides to wait the next morning to tell him what happened. And in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 37 to 38, it says, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, (laughs) love that expression, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, His wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. The Bible seems to be describing basically what in modern medical terms we would call a stroke, which would kill him about 10 days later. And after Nabal's death, interestingly, David asks Abigail for her hand in uh, marriage. says, would you become my wife? And she agrees. And so chapter 25 ends with a summary of David's marital status. verses 43 to 44, it says, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galen. Okay, so now David has three wives. The first one, Michael, Saul gives to another man. And now he has this lady named Ahinoam, and then he has a third wife, Abigail. In chapter 26, we're not going to really look at it in much detail, but a situation happens that is very similar to what took place in En when David had an opportunity to kill Saul and spared his life. David and his men are hiding out in the wilderness of Ziph. When the Ziphites turn on David and rat him out to Saul, and say, why don't you come over to where we are because David is hiding here among us. And so Saul heads out with an elite army of 3,000 soldiers. And he's camped there, surrounded by his entire army, when David and one of his lieutenants goes to Saul's tent where he is sleeping. And instead of killing him, he spares Saul's life. He takes Saul's spear and the water jug that is by his head And once he's a safe distance, once again, like he did it in Gedi, he shouts to Saul and says, why are you trying to kill me? I have done nothing against you. I have done nothing wrong. And once again, Saul repents and says, I'm sorry for trying to kill you, David. I won't do it. Chapter 26, verse 21, it says, then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son, David. For I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. This will be the last time that Saul and David will ever see each other in person. They will never see each other again. As we continue the story in chapter 27 then, we look at chapter 27 verse 1 and it says this, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So this is what David is basically saying is Saul has reassured me that he won't kill me anymore, but at the same time he's saying, I cannot rely on this guy's promises, because he doesn't have a stable enough character to back up his promises. So he says, for all I know, he's going to wake up tomorrow and decide that he regretted not killing me, and he's going to come after me again. And so he does the unimaginable. He goes back to the Philistine town of Gath, where he already was once at the beginning of his journey. If you remember, at the beginning of his wilderness time, David fled to Gath. Gath, the hometown of Goliath, the land of the Philistines. And David is immediately recognized for who he is in Gath. And I think that surprised him. And not only that, but he's recognized with the reputation of the Philistine killer, as the one who slew Goliath. And so, in a panic, he doesn't know what to do. And if you kind of remember that story, right? He starts drooling profusely on his beard, starts writing on the wall scribble, and he starts talking like an insane person. So, King Achish sees this behavior. And he says, what has happened to this guy? You know, He's gone crazy, and I, what am I going to do with him? Why did you bring him to me? Don't I have enough insane people in my kingdom that I need one more fool like this? And he sends him away. And very shortly after that, David, realizing the mistake he made to go to the Philistines, heads out of town and goes back to Israel. Well, interestingly, um, Now he goes back to Gath once again. And there's been a lot of debate about whether David should have done this or not. You know? Um, Some people say he had no choice. He was facing an impossible situation. And others say this expressed a lack of faith. That if he really trusted God, he should have believed that God could have kept him safe in the wilderness of Israel instead of having to put himself under unnecessary risk by going to the Philistines. The truth is it's impossible to know for sure whether David did the right thing or not. But what we can know is the state of mind of David at this point in time. You can imagine this is after like a decade of running from Saul. This is after several times that his own people have betrayed him to Saul and revealed his hiding places. This is after three narrow escapes, barely making it out alive, When Saul had caught up with him. And so you get the sense that David is saying, there is nowhere safe for me in Israel, so I'm going to take my risk and I'm going to go to Gath, to the place of my enemies. It's interesting that 10 years later, David's return to Gath could not have been more different. The first time he went, he was all alone running for his life. Now he arrives with an entourage of 600 fighting men along with their wives. This would have been a crew of about Two to 3,000 people. Not only that, but David also arrives in Gath with a very different reputation, not only as the Philistine killer, but also the hated enemy of Saul, a pariah among his own people, the Israelites. And so this time, King Achish, the king of the Philistines, welcomes David gladly and says, you and your men can stay in my palace. You can settle down here because it's the thinking, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so he welcomes David into Gath. But David makes this interesting request to him, and he says, Would you give me my own city in one of the surrounding countryside areas that I can have for myself? And so the king grants David's request, and he gives him the town of Ziklag. Ziklag. And David will live in Ziklag for the next 16 months. And what he does in Ziklag to get by there and provide for his men is actually rather disturbing. And it's recorded in chapter 27, verses 6 to 12. So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the the Gershites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell us and say, uh, tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. So, in order to provide for his people, he attacks these cities of these other nations that were both the enemies of the Philistines as well as the enemies of Israel. And then he lies to King Achish and he says, I have been attacking the Israelites and their allies. And the price that David pays for this lie is basically to kill every possible witness to his crimes. That's possible. And a lot of Bible scholars have wrestled with this. Were those killings justified because they were enemies of Israel? Well, the problem is we're not given that justification in the Bible itself. All we're told for a justification of these killings is that he wanted to hide his footsteps and make sure there were no witnesses to the lies that he was telling the king. Now, we're going to skip chapter 28 because I'm going to come back to it tomorrow. This is Saul's visit to the witch at Endor when he rouses the the ghost of the prophet Samuel. We're going to look at that briefly next week when I unpack the death of King Saul. But when we get to chapter 29... It begins with the entire Philistine army gathered at this place called Aphek. And Saul gathered his entire army nearby in this area called Jezreel. This is not just one of the skirmishes that happen regularly between the Philistines and the Israelites. This is all-out war. This is going to be the mother of all battles when the entire military of both countries have assembled to fight each other. And it's at this point that David's lies have finally caught up to him. Because Achish says, you're one of us now. You're like us, a fellow Philistine. So let's go and beat up your enemy Saul. Let's kill him together. So now you can understand what a dilemma David is in. He is expected to go into battle with Achish and kill his own people. Chapter 29, verses 1 to 3, it says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, it's like David and his soldiers are Achish's bodyguard. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commander of the the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. (laughs) So basically Achish reassures his commanders, There's no problem here. David is on our side. You can trust him. So now David is being called on his bluff. And the only way to prove his allegiance to Achish is to kill Israelites. Talk about a moral dilemma. And the question is, how is David going to get out of this mess? Well, his rescue comes from a really unexpected source. The Philistine commanders basically protest to Achish. There is no way that David is going to go to battle with us. Because their rationale is this. What better way for David to get into Saul's good graces again than to turn on us and fight with Saul in the heat of the battle? There is no way we could trust this guy. He is not going to march into battle with us. And so in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 29, it says this. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. (laughs) So basically, David is saved by the skin of his teeth to not have to kill his own people but what I love about it is what David does next because he should just count his losses and just thank the good Lord and walk away silently but he he like ups the ante on his lie and in verse 8 he says and David said to Achish but what have I done (laughs) what have what have you found in your servant from that day I entered your servant until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king it's like one of those, like, hold me back, hold me back, you know, like, let me fight. I mean, he, what an amazing poker player David is, right? And so David dodges this bullet, and at the crack of dawn the next morning, he heads back to Ziklag while the Philistine army heads to Jezreel in this final battle where Saul will be killed. The huge relief that David and his men must have felt that day quickly dissipates three days later when they finally reach Ziklag, their hometown. In chapter 30, verse 1 to 6, it says, And now when David and his men came to Ziklag, on the third day the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. And so while they were at Aphek, the Amalekites attacked Ziklag and basically burned the city to the ground and they take captive all their women and children. And you don't need much of an imagination to know (laughs) what the Amalekites would have done with these women and children as slaves of war and the brutality of those days. And so you could understand the absolute panic that these men must have been in to think about their children and their wives in the hands of these Amalekites. And they will do anything to get their children back safely into their hands. And so in their anger, they talk of stoning David. It's interesting, right? When things go wrong, it's our instinct to find somebody to blame. And the easiest target there was David because he was their leader. And at the end of verse 6, though, we find these important words. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David was far from a perfect leader as we've been establishing throughout this series looking at his life. But what stood out was the fact that his constant instinct in every moment of his life was to turn to God as his only hope. And so David asked Abiathar, the priest, if you remember when Saul massacred all the priests of Nob, Abiathar was the lone survivor among those priests, and he was now with David. And so he asked the priest, what do I do? How do I get out of this mess? What should I do? And Abiathar says, go and pursue the Amalekites because God will give you the victory. And so in verses 9 to 10, it says, So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were uh, who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. What you have to understand is this, is that David and his men had already traveled 30 miles in less than three days. And so by the time that they get to Bezor, they are fully exhausted because they had to go from Aphek to Ziklag and now Ziklag to Bezor. And so by the time that they reach this little brook, many of them can't go anymore. They are utterly spent. And so 200 of them stay behind, and 400 of them push on despite their exhaustion, where they encounter this Egyptian slave who got sick days earlier and was discarded by the Amalekites and left to die in the desert. And they nurse him back to some level of health, and they say, Can you help us? so that we could get our wives and our children back. And under the help of this Egyptian, they catch up to the Amalekites. And this is what takes place in verses 16 to 20. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Now the story should have ended on this high note of the Israelites celebrating the victory that God gave them, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It goes bad again. In verses 21 to 22, it says this. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and and, and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead his wife and children and depart. So the 400 who were able to push through their own exhaustion and then push through and fight the Amalekites, they say in all fairness, why should any of these deadbeats who couldn't go any further get any of the spoils of war? They don't deserve it. So they said they can have their wives and their children back. We'll give them that much. But we get everything else because we are the ones who worked for it, who fought for it. But David will have none of it. And verses 23 to 25, this is how the story ends. David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Everybody gets a share in this. We all get a piece of the pie. Well, so what are we to make of all this? (laughs) Um, Is there really a lesson to be found in the craziness that we just went through here in these closing chapters of 1 Samuel? And I want to say this, I think it's very tempting to focus all of our attention on David himself as we go through the story of his life. But I think the more that you do that, the more you focus actually on David, the harder it is to actually make any sense of all of this craziness that happens. I also want to say this, it's very tempting to try to portray David as some kind of moral exemplar and out of that wanting to lift him up as some kind of hero to basically try to justify all of his actions, no matter how disturbing they may be, and somehow all being God's will. But I think when we do this, we're missing the whole point of why stories like David's are in the Bible. Because if there is one main lesson that I think we're supposed to learn from all of these events, it is this. In the messiness and chaos of life in a fallen world, God is still able to accomplish his will. Let me say that again. In the messiness and chaos of life in a fallen world, God is still able to accomplish his will. And let me parse that out just a little bit as I try to tie up everything into some lessons here. The first expression of this is this that God is greater than the messes that we make of our own lives. God is greater than the messes that we make of our own lives. Because the truth is, as you've seen, as we've... I, I've not tried to somehow massage the text to avoid the controversial stuff, right? We've we've pretty much gone through the whole narrative here from the beginning. And what we've seen is is that the truth is David has created many of his own messes, hasn't he? Like when he starts wiping out whole towns and lying to the king Achish about the identity of those victims. How about when David is about to slaughter everyone in Nabal's household because of his bruised ego? We haven't even gotten to Bathsheba yet (laughs) and the mess that he makes out of that. And what's interesting is this. God is barely mentioned in the stories that we just went through in chapters 27 to 30. There is barely a mention of God in any of that. And yet, his presence is undeniable in every turn of the story. It's in the news that the Philistines are attacking when Saul is literally right there on the other side of the mountain and about to defeat David. It's there in the intervention of Abigail who prevents David from shedding innocent blood against Nabal's insult. It's it's there in the intervention of these Philistine commanders who refuse to let David fight when King Achish fights for his loyalty. It's there in this chance encounter with this Egyptian slave who leads them right to the Amalekite camp so that they could save all of their wives and children. In other words, God is the unseen hero in every one of these stories, accomplishing his will often in spite of what David does and not because of what David does. And I want to say that we need to remember this truth because the truth is we're just like David, aren't we? Often we create our own messes as well in our life. And I want to say this. I counsel a lot of Christians who live under this crushing weight of past failures and mistakes and sins that they feel have basically ruined any possibility for a best life that God may have intended for them. You know what I mean? Like a mistake that has set you on a course in which, from which you can basically never recover. what do you do if you feel that in the foolishness of your youth you married the wrong person? What a terrifying feeling that is. What if you feel that you've missed an opportunity in your life that you can never get back again? That chance will never come again and you blew it. Or If you feel like you've realized all of the mistakes that you've made as a parent to your children, but it feels like it's too late, they're teenagers now, and now look at them. (laughs) You guys are good. (laughs) You guys are good. We love you. But what about those other teenagers, right, (laughs) out there? And it's that feeling like you don't get a do-over as a parent. You can't hit the reset button. If the life of David teaches us anything, it is that God's care over us is greater than our sins and failures. We don't have to live under the shadow of some kind of second-class status in God's kingdom, believing that we can never experience God's best for us because of our past sins and failures. Let's... Let's be clear here. There are very real and often painful consequences to sin. But there is also a grace that covers our failures as well. And I hope you will remember that the next time you feel you have hopelessly messed things up in your life and you're not sure if you could recover. The second is this. God is greater than the messiness of morally confusing situations. God is greater than the messiness of morally confusing situations. Remember what I said earlier. When David runs to Gath, to the Philistines, was that God's will? Or could God not have protected David even in Israel? In our limited knowledge, it's impossible for us to know What about when David went to Nob at the beginning of his journey and he lied to Ahimelech, the priest, and said, I'm on a secret mission for Saul, and he lied to the priest because he didn't know who he could trust at that point rather than being truthful and saying, Saul is trying to kill me. Was that lie justified in the eyes of God? You know, in our limited knowledge, it's impossible to know whether in any situation we face there is one right God-honoring choice that we have to figure out. That's what I think much of what the life of David shows us is we enter into some places where we don't know always what the right thing is to do because we feel trapped by evil on every side. And I think that was David's world and that is also our world. We also live in a broken world that is filled with sin and we will face situations over and over again where we say, in my best wisdom, I don't know what the right thing is to do. I don't know what God's will is in this. And sometimes the truth is you feel cornered to have to choose the lesser of two evils. And you feel like there's no way out. And and these questions arise in us. Is it okay to bend the truth or just, let's call it what it is, to lie in order not to hurt someone's feelings? What if the company that you work for is guilty of all kinds of ethical violations like basically exploiting the poor? And as an employee of that company, do you share in that guilt? Should you quit your job and work somewhere else? What if you're forced to choose between allegiance to your parents and allegiance to your spouse, (laughs) and both of them demand 100%? It feels like you're going to have to hurt somebody, right? What if you feel like you need to break a foolish promise that you made to someone, a promise that you never should have made in the first place? Because by honoring that foolish promise in the long run, you're going to cause so much more damage. What does God want you to do? Keep that promise or cut your losses and break it? Have you ever felt paralyzed by s- impossible situations like this? And I think once again, the life of David shows us that God is greater than the messiness of even morally confusing choices that we often have to make in our lives. Listen, I'm not saying that gives us a pass to have to struggle with these things. Say, ah, At the end, God will take care of it all. I think God does call us to wrestle genuinely with the choices that we have to make. But what I am saying is this, that even as we wrestle with these, we have to have the humility to understand that the final outcome does not ultimately depend on our wisdom, our ability to always do the right thing. We don't have to carry that weight on our shoulders because we serve a God that is faithful. And I think that is exactly the wisdom that David had, is he doesn't know half the time what the right thing is to do. And he is struggling with all of it. But as we saw in verse 6 of chapter 30, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He turned to God and said, Help me, God. Help me in this impossible situation that is too much for me. Psalm 25, verse 16 to 21, it says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged, Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. If we're going to learn anything from the life of David, let us learn that wisdom from him is that whenever you find yourself in these impossible places where you literally say, I don't know if there's a way out of this. I don't know if there is a right thing to do even. God be my refuge. God be my deliverer. God be the one who helps me through this. The last thing I want to say, and we'll wrap up with this, is this. God is greater than the failings of even his own faith community. It's interesting that when David flees into the wilderness, he's alone. But those 10 years in the desert would result in the formation of a community around him. The problem is, often that community that gathered around David was utterly despicable. (laughs) It's so rare to ever see an A-team in the Bible, right? Uh, It just doesn't seem to exist. We saw this when David went to the cave of Adullam, chapter 22, verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. All the bitter come to me, right? And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. I thought about what a horrible way to gather a community. Everyone who is disgruntled, everyone who, who hates the status quo, everyone who has no other options and nowhere to go let's form a family together you know that's a recipe for disaster i thought what if we marketed icc in that same way i thought what about these slogans icc when you have no other options within a reasonable driving distance (laughs) icc when every other church has failed you why not give us a try But this is what's so fascinating to me is what God is really saying is these are my people. This is my kingdom. And it is from people like this that I'm going to do my work and accomplish my will. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've heard me share this quote. I'm going to read a bit more of an extended quote from his book, Life Together. Those who want more than what Christ has established between us do not want Christian community. They are looking for some extraordinary experiences of community that were denied them elsewhere. Such people are bringing confused and tainted desires into the Christian community. Christian community is not an ideal, but a divine reality. Every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Listen, are there ideals to which we ought to aspire to as the church of Jesus Christ? Amen to that. But sometimes in our pursuit of that ideal, we become the very enemies of the church that God loves and says, it is in these broken and messed up people, these people that screw up all the time and fail, and you kind of look at them and say, I see nothing very worthy in them, that God says, I am doing my greatest work in my kingdom. Not so much because of them, but even in spite of them. Eugene Peterson confesses this about his feelings about the church. Every time I move to a new community, I find a church close by and join it, committing myself to worship and work with that company of God's people. I've never been anything other than disappointed. (laughs) Complainers, the faithless, the inconstant, those plagued with doubt and riddled with sin. Every once in a while, a shaft of blazing beauty seems to break out of nowhere and illuminate these companies. And then I see what my sin-dulled eyes had missed. Word of God shaped Holy Spirit-created lives of sacrificial humanity, incredible courage, heroic virtue, holy praise, joyful suffering, constant prayer, persevering obedience. I see Christ. In other words, not only do we have to pray that larger vision of God into our own messy lives, much of the mess which we've created for ourselves, but we also have to pray it into the community of which we are a part. Like David at the brook Bezor, that is saying, what will define us is not fairness and justice, but mercy and grace that all of us need. You know what I find so fascinating is that word Bezoar actually means good news. It actually literally means good news. And it was as if David was preaching the gospel of good news of God's grace there at that brook that says 400 of you went and fought, and 200 of you were too tired to go on. But it was God who won this victory for us. And all of us will share that together. Let's pray. Let's come before God at this time in response through prayer. And I just want to invite you to reflect on where the focus of your eyes is. And I think the truth is, if we're really honest, often the focus is on ourselves and not on God, isn't it? We're always obsessing about mistakes that we've made and the messes that we've created. And then secondly, our focus is on other people and often with a very critical eye, judging others and seeing not only our own unworthiness, but seeing the unworthiness of others. And what David says in Psalm 25 is he says, God, he confesses, he says, sometimes my troubles loom so large in my heart, it's all that I can see. But then he says, I take refuge in you and I turn to you. I don't think God beats us up for moments of weakness and failure. But what I do see him holding us accountable for in the pages of scripture is when we don't turn to him in those struggles. What Jesus would say years later after David would say, you do not have because you do not ask. You don't seek. If you only sought, if you only asked, if you only knocked on the door, God could give to you everything that you need in your life. That's the wisdom of David. Not that he lived a morally exemplary life, but that in all of the messiness that he created in his life and all the messiness of other sins imposed on him, he was a man that sought after God's own heart and sought the face of God and everything. So let me just invite you to do the same right now in prayer. Come to God and say, God, when I think of the messes that I've created and when I consider some of these seemingly impossible situations that I feel trapped in, where I don't even know if there's a way out of this, Lord, help me to make wise choices. Help me to do the right thing, but also give me the assurance that it is not about my moral choices and my strength, on which I will ultimately stand, but on the promises of God and your faithfulness to to me.